0: This year in the Retirement Wisdom Podcast, we're discussing the fundamental building blocks of a great retirement. One of the cornerstones is wellness, and another is relationships. And today we'll be talking about a relationship that's one of the longest-running, if not the longest running, in your life. Your relationship with food. I'm your host, Joe Casey, and our guest today is Judd Brewer. He's an MD and PhD and a New York Times best-selling author and thought leader in the field of habit change. And the science of self-mastery. He blends over 20 years of experience with mindfulness training and a career in scientific research. He's passionate about understanding how our brains work and how to use that knowledge to help people make a deep, permanent change in their lives, with the goal of reducing suffering in the world at large. Dr. Judd is a director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, where he also serves as an associate professor in the behavioral and social sciences at the School of Public Health and Psychiatry, at the School of Medicine at Brown University. Additionally, he's the Executive Medical Director of Behavioral Health at ShareCare, the digital health company helping people manage all their health in one place, and a research affiliate at MIT. Previously, Dr. Judd held research and teaching positions at Yale University and the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness. As a psychiatrist and internationally known expert in mindfulness training for treating addictions, Dr. Judd has developed and tested novel mindfulness programs for habit change, including both in-person and app-based treatments for anxiety, emotional eating, and smoking. He's published numerous peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, trained U.S. Olympic athletes and coaches, foreign government ministers, and corporate leaders. He's the author of The Craving Mind, and the New York Times bestseller, Unwinding Anxiety. Today, we'll be discussing his new book, The Hunger Habit, Why We Eat When We're Not Hungry, and How to Stop. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I realized in reading your book, The Hunger Habit, that it's really about an important relationship, our relationship with food. How can we improve that relationship?
1: Yeah, that's the million-dollar question, right? I think it starts with understanding how our brains work and understanding how our minds work, because often we think that we just a matter of willpower, and I would say that's the farthest thing from the truth.
0: And why don't things like diets, measuring and tracking calories in, calories out, those seem rational and logical. Why don't they actually work in the long run?
1: (laughs) They are rational and logical. In fact, I learned that in medical school, you know, this formula of calories in, calories out it was handed down to me as though it was a Newtonian physics law. (laughs) Like the second law of thermodynamics, the first law of weight loss, calories in, calories out. The problem is that from a neuroscience standpoint, the behavior change piece is not in that equation. So the equation is correct. I think medical students probably still learn it. It hasn't changed. Yet the how to change is not in that formula. That's just what to change. And so... Taking I started taking a neuroscience approach. And also this actually came out of my clinic where I was really struggling to help my patients. You know, it started with smoking, where I was struggling to help them quit smoking. And then we had we'd actually done a study where we were doing this paradoxical approach where we were having people pay attention as they smoke cigarettes. Imagine you go in, your doc tells you to smoke. (laughs) You're like, didn't see that one coming. And so I was telling my—I wasn't just telling my patients smoke, you know, right? And of course, they all know that smoking is bad for them. So I'm not trying to do something antithetical to health, but I can say, well, you're—I know you're going to smoke anyway because you've tried everything to quit and you haven't quit yet. That's why you're seeing me. So why don't you just pay attention as you smoke? And they would come back. I had a guy that'd been smoking 40 years, like pack a day. So he'd roughly been reinforcing this this habit loop, so to speak, two hundred ninety-three thousand times, right? So. He comes back and he's like, how did I not notice this? That, oh, notice what? Well, cigarettes tastes like crap. <laughs> and that's the key. So not just for smoking, but people were just applying this themselves. We, we had developed this app called Craving to Quit for smoking based on these results. And people were coming back saying they're changing their eating habits. And in fact, most people gain weight when they quit smoking. These folks were actually losing weight because they were applying the same principles. So that's where I started to get in to this question of like, what's the universal mechanism happening here? And it turns out that this is called positive and negative reinforcement. Most of us have learned this, whether it's in high school or college psychology 101, it's a very, very well-known process. And in fact, the food industry knows it very well because they can leverage it to get us to eat more things, whether it's, hey, this is low fat, so it's healthy, which in fact just gets us to eat more food because our body doesn't register fullness or the bliss point or the vanishing caloric density There are all these scientific terms that basically mean how can we get people addicted more? So humans, we've got the deck stacked against us because the scientists are out there engineering everything from Doritos to Cheetos. And we're told that we should just buck up on our willpower and sign up for another year because we've failed whatever diet program there is, the the diet program du jour, let's put it that way. The problem is that nobody asked a neuroscientist. (laughs) I'm not the only one that could answer this question, but I happen to be a physician and a neuroscientist. So I was seeing the problem in my clinic and I started asking myself, what the heck's going on and how can I help my patients? And so with the smoking, we transferred or we kind of translated our learnings into eating and said, hey, let's see if this process applies to this as well. And we, so we, of course, as a scientist, I created an app, it's called Eat Right Now, so we could study this. And the way it works is we get people to map out these habit loops what type, you know, am I reaching for food because I'm hungry or because I'm bored, sad, angry, tired, lonely, whatever the emotion is. And just to put these in two categories, the, the hunger out of true physiologic need is called homeostatic hunger, right? Because we're out of homeostasis, out of balance. And that which is coming out of emotion, it's a misnomer. I love the term because it, it's a misnomer. It's called hedonic hunger. We're not hungry, but we're eating because of an emotion. So when it comes to the latter, well, when it comes to either, we can start paying attention. And so we can just ask the question, why am I eating? Am I hungry or is it something else? And then this is the part that gets amazing. And you could stop me at any point. I don't want to just go on this big, this big monologue. But, but this is so interesting to me that I could just go on and on and on. So stop me at any point. This is where we can leverage these same mechanisms that all the food scientists are using to get us to buy more food and we can subvert the dominant paradigm. So the paradigm works this way. Our brain sets up these reward hierarchies so that we'll pick a behavior that's more rewarding than another behavior. It helps us set up habits so that we can quickly choose between A and B throughout throughout our busy days and not have to relearn everything every day, because most habits are actually helpful. When it comes to food, our brains are actually still in survival mode. So they're going to preference things with a high caloric density. This is why the bliss point and all these things work. So if we, let's say broccoli versus chocolate, right? Chocolate, higher caloric density, our brain's going to say, ooh, chocolate, generally speaking. Unless somebody's had a bad experience with chocolate as a kid and they're like, oh, I don't like chocolate, but I like ice cream. Like there's always something. <laughs> and so if we pay attention, we can map out what our reward hierarchy is. And then we can bring in these laws, the other law, the, the calories in, calories out is the, here's what you should do in clinic. And then there's this Riscorla-Wagner model, which is developed back in the 1970s, which says, this is how habits actually form, and this is the key to changing them. Now, that formula doesn't involve willpower, but it does involve an error term called positive and negative prediction errors. And that basically means, and this is actually how we learn anything any day. So let's use an example, and then I'll explain what the terms mean. So let's say that a new tea, is that how you pronounce it? tea opens up in my neighborhood, chocolate shop, and I go in. I like chocolate, and I've got a certain standard, right? So I'm not going to slum it past seventy. You know, <laughs> it's got to be better. But also, it's like not all seventy percent chocolate is created equal, right? So. So I'm I'm always skeptical, but I'm always curious too. It's like, well, let's see how good their chocolate is. So let's see. I go in and I see their mango habanero truffle. I'm like, ooh, that sounds interesting. And I eat it. I'm like, boom, mind blown. I'm moving in. <laughs> you know, kind of like the uh, the scene in Chocolat where the mayor. If anybody's seen the movie, where the mayor, I'm I'm not going to give it away. That's a, I don't want to. Everybody should watch that movie around Lent. It's a fabulous movie. Julia Binochet and Johnny Depp. Great, all-star cast, great movie. And it's about willpower, right? That movie is about willpower. It happens to be a chocolate tea. So anyway, let's say I get the best chocolate ever. I get what's called a positive prediction error. And my brain gives me a dopamine spritz that says, hey, remember this chocolate tea, it's good, okay? So I've learned something, positive prediction error, because it's better than expected. On the other hand, if I eat it and it tastes like soap, <laughs> I'm like, dude, Who accidentally dumped the soap in? (laughs) I get a negative prediction error. And that means my brain learned something, also got a dopamine spritz, and I say, I'm not coming back here. So the I'm not coming back here is how we break bad habits, okay? So all of that is lead up to how this works. And how this works is one simple ingredient, which is paying attention. We have to pay attention to see that it's really good or it's really not so good. And in fact, my lab did a study. So we could actually have people pay attention as they overeat. Are you ready for this? It only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody overeating for that reward value to drop below zero. And they start to shift that behavior. Notice how I didn't mention the word willpower at all, right? This is about awareness. And it doesn't take that long, which is really good news.
0: So tell us a little bit more about the mindfulness aspect of this, the paying attention part. How do we cultivate that around food?
1: Yeah. So mindfulness is a concept and it can mean many things to many people. So I like to keep it simple. And it's kind of like, the, I was a chemistry major in college. It's kind of like the periodic table where there are all these elements that make up compounds or they make up, so salt is sodium and chloride or magnesium or you know whatever the salt is, but it's made up of elements. And then the elements are theoretically irreducible. Let's not get into electrons and quarks and stuff like that. So here, mindfulness is like salt. It's made up of different elements. The element of awareness is one and the element of curiosity is another. So maybe salt's a good analogy here. So you've got to be aware, but you also have to bring this attitude of curiosity for it to equal the compound of mindfulness. Okay, does that make sense? And so really it's about this curious awareness and think about, let's think about overeating, for example. A lot of people don't pay attention as they overeat. And maybe the next morning they wake up and they're like, wow, I didn't sleep very well. I wonder why. Well, maybe you had a little, your stomach is saying, why did you overeat? So we have people pay attention and just get curious about like what it's like as they overeat. So they can really register what the result of that overeating is. And that's where it plugs right into this formula of positive and negative reinforcement because that is critically dependent on how rewarding a behavior is. And how rewarding a behavior is is critically dependent on curious awareness. So if we can see very clearly that overeating does not feel good, within 10 to 15 times that reward value shifts. So it's really about paying attention, right? So we can do it after the meal and ask how'd that go for me? But this isn't about thinking I shouldn't have eaten this much and checking our calorie counter or whatever. This isn't about external, this is about internal. The feeling body is much stronger and wiser than the thinking brain. So this isn't about thinking, this is about feeling. So feel into our stomachs, how did it feel? How much did I eat? How'd it feel? How'd it go? And then we can also look at the results afterwards. Like, how's my mood? How's my energy level? How's my sleep? All of these things. Because eating what we eat and how much we eat affects all of those things. So that's how this mindful awareness comes in, is really noticing you know, what the result is. And then when we get doing that, we can start dialing it into each bite if we so choose. We can say, is this bite better than, worse than, or the same as the last one? And we, I detail it in the hunger habit, but the idea is that our body, based on how hungry we are, it's gonna register different quality, different yumminess, let's say, of food. That's the exact same food, right? So if I have eggs for breakfast, they could, that first, those first couple of bites could be absolutely delicious. I want to devour them because I'm starving. And then five minutes later, as long as I don't scarf them down in 30 seconds, five minutes later, same eggs don't taste as good because my body's saying, hey, you're starting to hit what I call the pleasure plateau, right? So we're going up the hill. Good, 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 good. We're plateauing out. And if we don't pay attention, we're going to go over the cliff of overindulgence.
0: So we want to use our wisdom of the body more than the caveman brain. I think you heard it. I heard you once explain it that way.
1: Absolutely. Yes. The wise body, which actually gives good information to the caveman brain. Caveman brain's is looking for information. So if it's not getting the information, it's just going to make assumptions and fall back on old habits.
0: So I'd like to ask about the habit loops, how they form when it comes to food. And maybe I'm curious about the example you used in your book about cravings and your battle with gummy worms. And what does that tell us about habit formation and change?
1: Sure. So, we can use my example as an exploration, you know, as a real world example of how this works. So, any habit forms with three key elements a trigger, a behavior, and a result. Or, from a neuroscience standpoint, we think of it as a reward. So, for example, if I'm stressed or tired, there's the trigger, and I eat some gummy worms at night, which is when I tended to eat them in graduate school. There's the behavior. The result was that I get this the sugar fix and it would be a distraction from whatever I was stressed out about. And that would be enough to feed back to train my brain. Hey, tomorrow night, come back for more gummy or buy more gummy worms because I basically eat the whole bag in <laughs> one sitting because they were so addictive. But that's how it forms. Whether it's, and this actually goes, I should back up and say, the basic process of negative reinforcement is is survival oriented, which is that we're trying to avoid things that are going to kill us. So the trigger might be that we see something dangerous. In ancient times, it could be a predator. And then we run away, there's the behavior. And then the result is that we don't become their lunch, there's the reward. In modern day, it's if, we, if we're so caught up in checking a text message and we step out into a busy street, we hear a car honk, there's, there's the trigger. We jump back, there's the behavior. And then the result is we don't get killed by the car, right? Then we learn, oh, hey, I hope we relearn what we were taught as kids, which is look both ways before crossing the street.
0: One of the things I love about your book, The Hunger Habit, is the 21-day challenge and how it really walks you all the way through. Tell us about how the three-part 21-day challenge works.
1: So it's split into three parts based on some of the qualitative focus group research that my lab did over the last decade with people who were going through our eating groups. So we had started pairing, doing this flip classroom model where we paired the Eat Right Now app with an in-person weekly group. We actually still run that every Wednesday at noon. Anybody using our apps can join that. And it's it's a delightful way to spend a, an hour because I'm always learning something new from the folks, even though I've been doing this for 8 or 9 years now. It's I, I absolutely love it. And the idea is... So we started observing early on, maybe in the first two years, that there was this sequence, this process that was happening. And as a scientist, I was totally fascinated. And as a clinician, I wanted to know so if I can actually <laughs> disseminate that process if it was real. And so this led by one of my graduate students at the time, Ariel Beckia, who did great work around qualitative research. We started asking people, what's going on? And it turns out that the first step, so this is the first part of the 21-day challenge, is the simplest. It's about mapping out these habit loops. Anybody can do this. Uh, we even made it. We put out this URL mapmyhabit.com that anybody can download a free PDF for the um you know map out their own habits whether it's eating or worrying or anything. And the idea is if you don't know what it is you can't work with it. So that's pretty straightforward. Most people get it right away and then they come back and they're like I had no idea how many habits I have as they start the mapping because it just like helps them be alert to other habits that might not be so helpful for them. So that's the first step. Any questions about that before we go to the second?
0: No, appreciate that.
1: Okay. So the second step actually taps into what we've been talking about in terms of reward value. So again, leveraging these reinforcement learning mechanisms instead of willpower, where we just have people pay attention as they eat an unhealthy food or a food that or overeat, for example, or eat when they're not hungry. Let's just put it that way. Whatever the habit is. And there, I just have people ask a simple question. What am I getting from this? So if they do that and they drop into their body, just like the study that I mentioned, they can start to see pretty quickly. If they're overeating, it doesn't feel very good. For me, eating the gummy worms, I I paid attention. I was like, oh, these don't actually taste very good. And they make me want more. I feel like a zombie. They look like fishing lures and they sure hooked me. <laughs> yeah. So, and then I would, I would eat the whole bag. I would feel bad. I wouldn't sleep well. All these negative consequences that came of it. And so I started to see that that behavior result relationship was not favorable. Certainly not favorable for me. It was favorable for whatever the company was that was making the gummy worms because I was hooked. So I started becoming disenchanted with the gummy worms. And this is what anybody can do if they pay attention and ask, what am I getting from this? This doesn't mean that ice cream is suddenly going to not taste good, but somebody might not eat that third helping when they don't need it, right? So we can hit the pleasure plateau on food that we love. We can start to not drive up the hill of the gummy worm mountain if we realize gummy worms just don't do it for me or whatever it is for us. So it could be the type of food or it could be the amount of food. And that's how we build what I call the disenchantment database. That's what helps us become less excited to do the old habit. Again, notice no no willpower needed here, okay? Any questions before we go to the third step? No, keep going. Okay. So the third and final step is actually leveraging the same reward-based learning process but giving our brains something better. So for example, if I still after dinner often am interested in a little a little sweet for dessert. I love it. <laughs> So this is about finding those bigger, better offers. So instead of a bag of gummy worms, I could ask, open up that space and say, well, what would I prefer? And it turned out I just happened to be comparing gummy worms to blueberries, right? Blueberries for me, I won't go into it, but I love blueberries. They certainly taste good. I don't don't overindulge. They've got enough fiber in them so that I don't get the sugar rush and crash and I get full and all, all the good stuff. And I just realized recently that blueberries are actually good intermittent reinforcement <laughs> uh, because intermittent reinforcement is like the slot machine. You never know when you're going to win and blueberries. You never know which one's going to be sweeter or tarter than the next one. I like both sweet and tart, but man, that variety sure keeps things interesting. <laughs> you know? Imagine if they all taste exactly the same. <laughs> so the blueberries, man, they sure won the jackpot on that one, but this could be anything like for me. I don't always eat... I often don't eat blueberries for dessert. Depends on if they're in season or whatnot. But I like dark chocolate. Love dark chocolate. And so one or two squares of like 85... Really good 85% dark chocolate. That's all I need. And in fact, my favorite chocolate company... I I go by dollar to quality ratio too. Like if if I know I'm eating an $8 bite of chocolate, it's not as tasty. (laughs) So... So I started making my own dark chocolate and you can add in all sorts of stuff. Like right now I'm playing with like habanero hibiscus. And so it's like, you can dial things up any way you want, but I'm not gonna eat a whole pound or even a half or a quarter pound of dark chocolate because it's dark chocolate, it's enough. I don't get that urge for more. What tells us to eat more is sugar, right? Sugar is designed that way. Our bodies are co-designed with sugar to say this is a great calorie source, Pack it in so you can pack it away as fat for later, right? And dark chocolate doesn't have that. So that's a third and final step. But it all all of these share one characteristic or one ingredient, which is awareness, right? You've got to be aware of the habit loop. You've got to be aware of what the results are. What am I getting from this? And then you've got to be aware of what, what the bigger, better offer is, which could be simply not overeating.
0: I was struck by your example, the blueberries in terms of the curiosity and awareness of the the different types sure can't wait to. Can't wait wait to have blueberries uh soon <laughs> <laughs> that really got got my attention and tell us about the app you mentioned the app I've been using the app. Tell us about how the app works and how you came came up with that well it's i uh, we originally
1: we developed our first digital therapeutic back in two thousand and twelve when I was at Yale at the time and you know, the conditions came together where we had gotten this this really good clinical result in our first randomized controlled trial of smoking cessation, where we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. And one of my mentors at the time, Kathy Carroll, was she was examining how the quality of fidelity of clinicians and, and therapists for a certain protocol. So somebody was trained in CBT or motivational interviewing or whatever she wanted to see how well they actually followed the manuals. And it turns out that therapists are good at doing therapy. I don't want to overgeneralize some therapists aren't that good, but a lot of them are great. And there it turns out that even therapists who are, you know, trained at the highest level, know they're in a research study, know they're getting recorded, still don't follow the script. They're good at being therapists, but not so good at following script or following treatment manuals, let's say, because they're therapists or whatever. I don't want to I know what's going on in their head. So I started thinking, oh crap, here we've got a really good result. We had the opportunity to scale something up in person or something else. And I was like, wow, in-person scaling may not work so well. And it's hard to do, blah, 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 blah. So at the time, this is 2012, iPhones were still relatively new. Androids didn't even look like phones at the time. But we had the idea to just, to actually say, well, let's package this as an app. Instead of people playing Angry Birds or whatever they were playing at the time, let's have them use their phones for good. And so we developed these modules, videos, animations, exercise-based, where it's like 10 minutes a day for 28 days, four weeks. And then there's a bunch of you know, theme weeks that go into the material more in depth where people can, they learn, they get bite-sized, ha-ha, bite-sized trainings where they can learn a little aspect of how to work this three-step process day by day and then we, the nice thing about an app is you can study the heck out of it. And so we could study it and, you know, we knew we had, it had 100% fidelity. Well, I won't go into all the details. We published some papers on this, but basically we could see how well it works. So the idea came from this oh no moment as a clinician wondering how the heck we could scale something that's evidence based. And in fact, in the last couple of years, we are now the first CDC-recognized diabetes prevention program that's based on mindfulness, which is awesome. We're really excited about that. And and that highlights how far the science has come, even in, over the last 10 years, around how mindfulness can really help people change their relationship to eating.
0: Appreciate all of that. And I'm wondering, one last question, do you have any additional advice for people listening who want to change their relationship with food? The only other thing I would add So I would say
1: this attitudinal quality of awareness, of mindfulness is really critical. So I think of curiosity as a superpower. So this isn't about going in, judging ourselves. This is really about going in, taking that Zen beginner's mind attitude of like, oh, let's see what's happening. So anytime there's an, oh no, I have this craving, instead of fighting it, we flip that script into, oh, I wonder what this craving feels like. And it really helps disarm the quality of it because we're we're leaning in and i love that that saying the obstacle becomes the way or you know is it Marcus Aurelius what stands in the way becomes the way and so as we curiosity really helps us lean in the other piece i would add is curiosity's best friend is kindness so often we get in the habit of beating ourselves up and judging ourselves thinking that that's going to propel us into behavior change well in fact what it does is it locks us into not being in a place where we can grow. It it puts us into a fixed mindset instead of our growth mindset or our growth sign. So having, bringing kindness every moment of, the, of every step of the journey is really important. I guess the last thing I would say is just as a, as a helpful, I see people struggle with this all the time, change is scary because our brains don't like change. And so just knowing that our brain's going to resist because our brain... Is set up to say, oh, this is different. Is it dangerous? Right. And so looking around, reminding ourselves, yeah, this seems scary, but that's just my survival brain saying, hey, are you sure you want to do this? And then we can look around and reassure our brains this isn't dangerous. <laughs> it might actually be anti dangerous. It might be helpful, but you know, and healthy. That can help us lean in and the curiosity can go a long way for that as well. So we move into our growth zone instead of getting stuck in our panic zone.
0: Thanks so much for making us a lot smarter about this and for all your work on, on habits and, and change. My pleasure. My goal with these podcast conversations is to share new information, but also to get us to take action. So here are a few takeaways from today's conversation with Dr. Judd Brewer. Number one, are you up for the challenge? His new book, The Hunger Habit, has a 21-day challenge with a chapter on each day. With specific focus and lots of information, useful information on each one. It's a challenge I've decided to accept. I'm involved in it, and I hope you will too. Number two, bring some curiosity to your mindfulness. I thought his point about mindfulness equals curiosity plus awareness was really interesting. The curiosity part, I think, adds a new dimension. So I think you'll find that an interesting part to focus on. How can you bring some curiosity? To your mindfulness and attention to what we're doing. Number three, may the reinforcements be with you. As he mentioned, we all learned way back about positive and negative reinforcement. He's got a great way to use those two things, positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, to our advantage in a way in transforming our habits. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom podcast. If you're going to be retiring, you may want to take a look at our best books on retirement series. It includes short summaries, a link to a podcast if I've interviewed the author, and a link to other books that you may find interesting. It's a quick reference library, but it includes books that you won't think of having anything to do with retirement, but actually can apply some things that you'll find very useful. Thanks again for listening.